If you have a Bible this evening, you can maybe turn to the chapter uh, we read from in Genesis and chapter 1. Genesis and, and chapter 1. And this evening we're thinking of the fourth day of creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. When I was at primary school, I learned this little song. It's it's amazing what you remember from primary school. And uh, maybe you you learned this this song here uh, by Nickel Creek. Uh, It's about a fox. And the the story is that this fox manages to, to get the prize goose uh, out of the, the farmyard and is chased uh, by the farmer and, uh, and his wife uh, off the land. Uh, and it's a, it's a gripping uh, little poem for, for, for children, but it begins in this way, that Fox went out on a chilly night. He prayed for the moon to give him light for many a mile. He had to go that night before he reached the town. And while all in that poem is not theologically sound, Yet, yet, there is this recognition in that opening line, verse that the moon gives light. And this is where we are this evening in the fourth day of creation. The sun, the moon, and the stars are ordained by God to give light onto the earth. And and in coming to this fourth day, we're we're moving into a a new stage in the creation account, moving out of the the first phase, days one to three, which are kind of establishing the the framework of, of the earth. And in the second three days, this framework will be filled out. The earth will be furnished by God's goodness and power. And so we see this in the coming to this fourth day that we're revisiting the theme of light. That was the first day. And the fifth day will revisit the second day. And the sixth day will revisit the third day. There is this parallelism, this structure, this order emplaced into God's workings in creation. And some scholars would argue from that structure that chapter 1 is poetry. That rather than being the, the literal account of the historical creation, it is a, an attractive poem by Moses. We would reject that position and, and we would argue that it is a literal historical account of the creation. If we want to see what poetry looks like, we we see it in Psalm 104 as the inspired poet looks at the creation of the world. But we would argue that this parallelism within chapter 1 indicates the orderly fashion of God's working. All civil engineers working on the HS2 line, they have a plan. They have a phase one and a phase two and probably a phase three, four, five, and six. And here is God, the supreme designer, the great creator, and he is setting out the order of creation in this structured and rational way. And we come this evening to 
the fourth day, the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. The creation of the the sun, the biggest object in our solar system, 93 million miles from us, 330,000 times bigger than planet Earth, a massive ball of fire, 5,500 degrees Celsius on its surface, 14 million degrees Celsius at its core. The sun is the source of most of Earth's energy, though Earth receives but a fraction of the energy emitted by the sun. The sun's power output requires 4 million tons of matter to be converted every second into energy. 1.4 million kilometers in diameter. Good for our bones. Good for our sleeping pattern. Good for plant life. Good for killing bacteria. Good for reducing blood pressure. The sun. This described in our verses as a great light. Scientists object to this. They call it a naive and misleading statement because there are far greater lights than the sun. The biggest and most luminous star known to scientists is R136A1. It has a surface temperature of 50,000 degrees Celsius. It's 265 times bigger than the sun, shining 8.7 million times brighter than the sun. And compared with that star, the sun is not a great light. But the Bible is describing the sun and the moon in relation to earth. This creation account is given in connection with our understanding and viewpoint. And in connection to our viewpoint, the great lights we see is the sun in the daytime and the moon in the evening. Critics have taken issue with the Bible's references to the sun rising and to the sun setting. And they argue that this indicates that perhaps the the biblical writers thought that the sun revolved around the earth rather than, as we know, the earth revolves around the sun. But once again, the biblical writers are using our observation of these heavenly bodies describing the sun's movements from earth's standpoint you and i speak naturally of the amazing sunrise and the incredible sunset 
And so we think of this first heavenly body. And we're filled with worship. How incredible the sun is. Psalm 74 verse 16 says, O God, yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. Fusing 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. All that detail, composition, purpose, speed, movement, determined by the mind and the hand of God. If the sun was any closer to earth, it would roast us. If the sun was any further away from earth, we would freeze. Situated perfectly to provide the optimum temperature and conditions for human habitation. What a God he is. And we worship him for the son he has made. And the Bible also, as it reflects on the son and its full canonical understanding wants us to be filled with excitement. There's a verse in Isaiah 30 that possibly you're, you're not familiar with, a verse number 26 of that chapter, and it's looking forward to the new creation. And it's drawing this contrast and comparison with our creation now, which is chained by the effects of the fall and that new liberated creation that we look forward to. And in 3026 of Isaiah, the writer says, the light of the moon will be the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people. We look at the sun tonight, today, and we think that's incredible. That burning ball of fire, how amazing. And, and the more we enter into its detail and constituents, the more wonder we're filled with. Isn't that incredible? And Isaiah takes that, look at that burning ball. Isn't that amazing? But it's nothing like the glory of the new creation. When we are liberated and creation is liberated from the effects of the fall. The sun made by God. Secondly, the moon. We don't probably know or study or think as much about the moon as we do about the sun, do we? It's smaller, 400 times smaller, although 400 times closer to the earth, so they seem in similar size to us. It's often out there shining when we are inside sleeping, drifting from the earth at four centimetres every year. Not white, but black basalt experiences moonquakes lasting up to half an hour. But not only is the moon incredible, as this text indicates, for the light 
that it shines to it. But the moon is incredible for its gravitational pull, which creates the tides within our world. It pulls the water and the surface of the earth when it comes near. And such is the incredible nature of that gravitational and extent of that gravitational pull that it pulls the tides at both sides of the planet so that every day we have a high tide on two occasions. Many scientists claim that all of this detail, all of this precision, all of the exactitude of the gravitational pull happened 4.5 billion years ago when a rock the size of Mars slammed into the earth and a piece of rock burst out of this earth and became the moon with its gravitational pull and its reflection of the light of the sun. But this chapter says, God made the moon to rule the night as the sun would rule the day. To rule in the sense of to dominate, to be the brightest light, the shining light upon this earth, to have that right amount of gravitational pull that would cause those tides to to come and go. This God's servant, God's creature, fulfilling God's purpose. And all the nations of the earth have recognized the importance of the moon and of the sun. Sunday. Monday. Isn't Psalm 8 really interesting as it exalts the creator God? How excellent in all the earth is your name. Beginning and ending that psalm, the psalmist is overcome with praise and worship and adoration. And what is sparking, what is driving his enthusiasm for for the creator God? It's the moon. When I consider the heavens, not that mighty ball of fire that we see throughout the day, but the moon, the work of your fingers. What is man? That you're mindful of him. As we walk along the, the floodgates. The tide is out sometimes. And the tide is in sometimes. And our minds should. Drift to our creator. To think of the amazing way. And the location. And the power. And the influence. And the role that he has given to the moon. To cleanse the shores. To purify the beaches. Have you been to Venice? In the wrong time. And the stagnant water there. Is absolutely destroying your holidays. And your nostrils are full. Of this offensive smell. And imagine a world like that. But God has established the moon. To cause the tides. To cleanse our shores. And purify our beaches. The sun, the moon, the stars. 
and the stars. That's all it says. If you look up to the sky, as you're able to do last night on a, on a clear night, scientists tell us, astronomers tell us, you can see around 6,000 stars. Creation ministry scientist Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, he reckons there are 200 billion trillion stars. A billion in the Milky Way alone. Incredible. Mind blowing. So you're asking, why does it just say, and the stars? Why? Not mesmerize us with incredible numbers as, as I've done and uh, expand on this and, and enlarge on this and, and make us feel so small. Why this short comment and the stars? Calvin comments on this and says, Moses is writing not as a scientist, but as a theologian. And his emphasis is on the glory of God and the goodness of God to humankind and the main beneficiaries in the heavenly bodies which affect humankind and display the goodness of God to humankind are the sun and the moon, the greater lights to rule the day and the night. The purpose of these heavenly bodies is set out for us in verse 14. For years, solar system with its 365 days, the time that the sun takes to return to the same position in the sky. The days calculated from noon on one day to noon on the next day. The seasons enabled by the orbit of planet Earth and by the axis, the, the tilt on the axis of planet Earth. And the signs before the compass, the sailors, the travelers, used the stars to guide them. Matthew 16 refers to the weather being predicted from the, the clouds and the color of the sky. The odd time, the, the supernatural purpose and plan of God was revealed in the heavens the wise men following the star to the child in Bethlehem. Do you remember the day God took the childless Abraham outside, out of his tent, and asked him that night to look at the, look at the sky and to see the stars, and God presses it down on him and says, see if you can number them. And God went on to say to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. What a statement that is. And as we think of the stars, the, the billion, trillion, as Dr. Sarfati says, what, what does this mean for us? The seed of Abraham, we, we would say, is, is the church, those who follow Abraham's faith, believers justified by faith. So what does this promise mean? That your offspring will be like the numberless stars of heaven. Revelation 7 uses that language, doesn't it? 
that there's a multitude that no one can number. Have you ever thought of of the question, will there be more people in heaven than in hell? B.B. Warfield, in one of his volumes, addresses this very question. And he argues that there will be. And he bases it on texts like this. Abraham, looking up at the stars. Can you count them, Abraham? So will your offspring be. He argues from Colossians 1 that Christ, in all things, will have the preeminence. Whatever the answer, there's going to be many in heaven. So shall your offspring be. Let's make sure we'll be there by following Abram's faith. The son. Some argue that Genesis 1 is a polemical piece against the false gods of Egypt and other lands. The sun was one of the dominant gods in Egypt, and it's not named in this passage. It's called the greater light. And perhaps it's for that very reason. And Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, he he adds to that, that polemical idea by pointing out that The sun occurs on the fourth day. It wasn't made on the first day. It wasn't made on the sixth day when man is made as the climax of God's creation. It's made on the fourth day. It's given a subordinate place. And the intention for the first readers, fresh out of Egypt, and for us reading it today is, we're to have no other gods. Amazing though the sun is. Incredible though it is. God is to have central place in our life. Is it the case? It's a challenge emanating from day four of creation. I was reading in Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's biography uh, when the the, the London preacher uh, of last century, and he went, before he went to London, to a a small town in Wales, a place called Sandfields, and there was a very enthusiastic enthusiastic church, we would call him the Clark of Session, and uh, Mr. E.T. Rees. He was delighted that this Harley Street doctor would come to this backwater place of Sandfields to a very small congregation. E.T. Rees was enthusiastic about a lot of things. He loved rugby. He played rugby. He watched rugby. He talked rugby. And one day Lloyd-Jones said to him, you need to get rid of that. It was a God to him. Good in itself. Proper in its place. What about us? What dominates our life, our talk, 
For my uncle in the north of Scotland, it was motorbike riding. He was gifted at trial bike competitions and he found himself sitting in church thinking of the competition from the day before and the mistakes that he made and thinking of the course in in the week to come and, and, and how he could improve his time. Become a God to him. And he gave it up. The sun. The moon. Matthew Henry is wonderful in his comments on this. As you could imagine. You probably have guessed where he's going. He's talking about the, the lesser lights. Not the blazing sun, not the, the prominent star. But that lesser light, which is yet called one of the greater lights. And this is what he says. Those are most valuable that are most serviceable. And those are the greater lights, not that have the best gifts, but that humbly and faithfully do the most good with them. And he quotes Matthew 21, 26, Whoever will be great among you, let him or her be your servant. And we know the truth of this in our life, don't we? The best ministers, the best elders, the best deacons, the best Christians are not the smartest always or the wealthiest or the most gifted, but those that did the most good to us. Perhaps it was the way they served tea at the church meeting with kindness and generosity and humility. Maybe it's someone on the deacon's board who volunteers for anything that's going on. Maybe it's the warm smile, the firm handshake, the text, the call, the card. Such servants are great. And useful in our eyes. And the stars. John Calvin is one of many who warn Christians against astrology as they comment on the stars. Hippolytus in the fourth century wrote a famous and influential volume entitled Against Heresies and even though writing so long ago he has pertinent and gripping things to say. They argue that though the stars are described as ruling over in a sense yet it's God who determines our personality and our days, and our occupation. The signs of the zodiac or reading the stars are are connected to the the 12 months and when we are born, there is the thought by the Greeks and the Babylonians and perpetuated in today that whenever we are born, 
Those influences of the stars in that month, in that time scale, will determine our character, our personality, and events in our life. But Genesis 1 is directing us to the God who has made the stars, who has established the sun with its temperature and its location, and the moon with its gravitational pull, and the stars in the background with their beauty, all set in their place with great detail and precision. And it's to that God that we're to look, and in him we're to trust. As a family moving to Newton and Ards, we're still amazed at the incredible provision of our God for every single member of our family. The sun, the moon, the stars. The fourth day of creation leads us, of course, to Jesus Christ, when the prophet Malachi wanted to describe the influence, that the phenomenal coming and beneficial effect of the Messiah, it was to the fourth day he turned in chapter 3. He will come in a time of darkness, in a time of great wickedness, but he will be like the sun who shines. Even in numbers, when they were looking forward so long ago to the coming of the promised one, they described him as the star from Jacob. The one who was bright, the one who was above, the one who would rule in glory. And when God, in that apex of revelation in the Old Testament, in describing the, 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 the fullness of his covenants, In Jeremiah 31 of the coming of the Spirit, the writing of the law in our hearts, the forgiveness of our transgressions, he comes to the fourth day of creation. And he says, if you wake up from your beds and see no sun or find no moon, Or detect no star. That's the day you'll know. That my grace to my people. Has ended. It's not just the rainbow. That we look at. And think of God's mercy. In Jeremiah 31. God says. It's the sun. It's the moon. It's the stars. They are heralds. That I am a covenant Faithful, gracious God. William Kuyper suffered from depression, the great poet and writer of hymns, and he stayed at the bottom of John Newton, the preacher's garden, and he would be up during the night with his depression, and he would be looking for the smoke coming out of the chimney in John Newton's house. And he knew then that the preacher was up and there was a welcome for him and a warmth at its hearth and fireplace. And God says, when you see the sun, when you see the moon, when you see the stars, when you see my faithfulness in perpetuating these heavenly bodies to bring beneficent effects to mankind, 
you're assured by these visible signs of my covenant faithfulness and my enduring love. 